Good morning, everybody. My name is J.P. Sundararajan, and um, I want to tell you something, a little bit about myself. It's always, uh, when I go to a new congregation, um, it's a chance for you to know uh, how insecure I can actually be. Um, there are two kinds of people in this world, I've discovered. Um, the kind of people who like camping, and then there's the rest of us, right? Um, it was 2004 uh, when I married my lovely bride, Katie. And Katie grew up in upstate New York. Um, and that was the thing they did. I mean, apparently, all, you know, every vacation, they would go up to the Adirondack Mountains and camp, like rustic, old-school camping. Um, I grew up as a missionary kid in India, so we did mission work. Um, the idea of calling rustic uh, thing a vacation was just kind of a very alien concept to me. But I was like, OK, this is something that was very important to Katie. And I said, I've got to enter into this adventure with her. I don't know what this means, but maybe it's a chance for me to learn something. Maybe I could prove my mettle somehow. I don't know. So Katie said, we got married in December. So the following summer in 2005, she said, we're going up to upstate New York, and you're going to camp where I grew up camping. And I was like, OK, sure, go, go ahead, Katie. So Katie went ahead, and she did all her research, and she found this little secluded spot where we, she said, this would be off the beaten path, and this is where we'll set up our tent, and this is where we're going to camp. And she kept using this phrase, bear country, after everything that she said. <laughs> and, and I'm a city kid, so I was like, I don't know what this means, but um, OK. And so we go. And it's one of those things where, you know, like she was right, uh, off the beaten path, so it's kind of secluded and isolated. And for those of you who are campers, this sounds amazing, I know. But for those of us who are not, this sounds kind of tedious because there is no water there, right? So in order for you to get water to do your dishes, you kind of walk down this path, and there's a little faucet. You'd fill it up, and then you'd go and do your dishes. But then you can't pour the water there because bear country. So then you'd have to go into the woods and pour the water there. And then that, that path, right? I think I counted 617 times I felt like I walked up and down that path every day. But I'm going to do this. This is, this is my way of being supportive, and I want to engage her in something that was clearly important to her. The other thing I did not realize about camping, my friends, is people are super friendly on these campsites. Um, I, I had no idea. So every time I'd walk down this path, there was a, a campsite right next door. And there was a guy sitting there. He's Canadian. They've been coming there for like 25 years. So clearly, that's something that's important to him as well. Um, but every time I would walk by, he would say something like, how's it going? What's up? And, and every time I realized somebody was talking to me, I'd already passed this campsite. So then it got a little awkward, right? Because you don't want to go back and be like, oh, hey. Um, it happened the first day, fine, or a second day. And then I kind of, it got to a point where it got really, really awkward. And then I kept thinking, you know, JP, he probably thinks you're rude. He's been so nice to greet you. And what have you done? Just ignored him. And then the second day goes by. And then the shocking realization begins to make its way into my heart, where I realize, well, forget being rude. He probably thinks I don't speak any English. And I was like, well, that, I can speak English. I got to fix that, right? Um, and there's the, the American English is very different than the English I grew up with. And I knew this because I came to college uh, to the United States. And when somebody says, how's it going? Apparently, the correct response is, how's it going? I didn't know that. The other thing, and this is awkward, I figured this out. When somebody says, what's up? No matter how exciting your life is, 
Don't say plenty, because that just leads to very awkward conversations again. So you always say, not much. What's up with you? <laughs> so in my head, I was like, OK, these are Americanisms. And you know this, JP. You went to college in the US and seminary. If he greets you, you can greet him back in the proper American way. So last day. So we're reading at the beach. Katie has to go back. So she went back to the tent. And then I pick up my lawn chair and my book. And I walk back. And I see my friend, my Canadian friend, sitting in his lawn chair, staring. And, I, and I'm like, OK. Yeah, one chance, moment of glory, right? So I go by, and he looks at me, and he says, catch the sunset? I was not expecting that at all. <laughs> and I panic, right? And so in my split second of chaos, I responded, I'm not kidding, I said, I read book. And I went back to my tent. Friends, it's really good to be here with you this morning. I always love uh, opportunities to come on a Worldwide Communion Sunday. And I was also watching all the kids dressed in their ethnic garb. And I was like, this is beautiful. I should have worn my Indian outfit. And then I was like, no, maybe what I should do is wear an American outfit, because this is ethnic garb for me. So you're welcome. <laughs> this morning, what I want to do is I want to read a phrase, um, kind of go back to what Paul says to the Romans in Romans 10, 14, and 17. I know Kathy kind of used it in her prayer as well. And what I want this verse to be for you is the backdrop. For everything I say today, I want that to be echoing through um, the stories. This is what the Apostle Paul writes. He says in Romans 10, how then can they call on the one they've not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they've not heard? And then skipping down to verse 17, Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word about Christ. Will you pray with me? God, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts will be acceptable and pleasing, my creator, rock, redeemer. Amen. This morning, what I want to do is I want to bring your attention to two things. One is I want to tell you, since I began, I'm kind of just past the one-year mark as in this role at RCA Global Mission. And I've heard many, many stories in my time here. And what I want to do this morning is I want to share with you one of my favorite stories. And then what I want to do is offer to you a challenge, maybe a, a new way to understand missions. So here's, here's the first the story I want to share with you. It's kind of called, the, in, in our circles, the RCA Triple Play. This happened during the Revolutionary War, and I love that our story goes back, back, way back, right? Again, up in upstate New York, where I've already told you a story from. But John Livingston is oftentimes kind of considered to be one of the uh, main key pieces in helping form the RCA into what it is today, kind of one of our founding fathers, if you will. And being a person of influence and charisma, oftentimes he found himself the target of the powers that be. So this was during the Revolutionary War, and he's on the run, and he apparently was in hiding throughout the week. But on Sundays, he would emerge into these little churches, little RCA congregations in upstate New York where he would preach. He just never knew where, right? It also so happened that prisoners of war, they considered that taking them to church on Sunday would be appropriate rehab for prisoners of war. So one fine Sunday, 
John Henry Livingston emerges into this little church in upstate New York to preach a fiery sermon. And it was a sermon on evangelism and reaching the ends of the world. And it is the Romans 10 passage, right? How then can they call on the one they've not believed in? Now, sitting in the congregation were a bunch of prisoners of war. And one of them was a German drummer boy named Christian Bork. Now, we don't know much about Christian Bork, except he heard the sermon and he was moved by it. That's all we know. Livingston disappears back into hiding. The prisoners of war taken back. And Christian Bork finishes his, his time as a prisoner of war. I mean, he is released. He is still moved by the sermon that he enrolls in seminary, graduates, and becomes a pastor at Franklin Street Reformed Church in New York. And he, be, he was a pastor there for 30 years. Again, a very ordinary pastoral life, right, for 30 years. And we don't really know a whole lot more than that, except sitting in the pews at Franklin Street Reformed Church under the mentorship and spiritual guidance of Christian Bork were John and Harriet Scudder, who, if you know anything about the RCA and global missions, the Scudders rise to the rank of legends because through the Scudder family, and John and Harriet especially, they cumulatively have added a thousand years of mission service around the world. And so oftentimes when I hear the story, uh, the, the triple play comes in. It's like there's Livingston, there's Bork, and Scudder. And they say, we need to find ourselves in one of these categories. Where do you find yourself? Now, John and Harriet Scudder hear echoes of Livingston's call, right, to reach the ends of the earth through Christian Bork. And they are moved by it. And I want to read this particular phrase from a book that's in, our, um, you know, in all our mission stories. Uh, this is by Gene Heidemans of People in Mission. This is what he says. The American Board of Commissioners for Foreign Missions needed a pious physician for India. John and Harriet Scudder offered themselves for service and taking their baby with them, sailed for Calcutta on June 8, 1819. They soon encountered the high personal cost of missionary service. Their baby died on the way. This year marks 200 years from when John and Harriet set foot on that boat that would mark the last voyage for their little girl. And I wonder, what went through their minds when they put their entire lives at the foot of the cross to go to a land which was on the other side of the world? What did they feel when they had to say goodbye to their little girl en route? Did they have a funeral service for her? Did they second-guess their decision? And according to everything we read, no. They were committed to the cause of Jesus Christ. They knew that there were people waiting to hear the good news. And then all their kids, they had, they had other kids afterward. All but one of them would become RCA missionaries. Their son, John Scudder Jr., was a doctor. But the story I want to share with you this morning is actually the story of his daughter, Ida Scudder. Now, Ida was, you know, a little girl, not interested in becoming a doctor like her father or grandfather, and not interested in being a missionary. And so she was sitting outside her dad's clinic, a little girl, just kind of watching what was going on. 
And she had an encounter one evening that changed her life. And I would argue, changed India forever. Because the first thing she saw was a Brahmin man who came with his very pregnant wife. And the wife was in pain, and the man implores Ida to help his wife. And she said, but sir, I'm not a doctor. I can't help. But my dad is. Can I bring him? And he said, no, I cannot have um, a man come into my caste home. I can't do that. Can you help? And she said, I can't. I'm not a doctor. And they have this exchange, and the man angrily leaves. She sits, and next she, she says, a finely dressed, well-groomed Muslim man came with his very pregnant wife, who was in mortal pain. And again, this exchange happens, where the man says, my wife is in trouble, and he implores Ida, can you help her? And she said, but I'm not a doctor. My, my father is a doctor. He can come and take. And he said, no other man has laid his eyes on my wife. I can't have another man do that. And so the attendants at this point at the hospital get into this exchange with this man. They said, sir, he is a doctor. He can help your wife. And then finally, it gets so heated, they say, sir, if the doctor cannot attend to your wife, she will die. At which point, Ida says, the man's eyes just fill with tears, and he said, then she must die, and they walk away. And she had one more incident. Another high-caste Hindu man comes with a pregnant wife, and again, the same exchange happens, and the same walking away. And these are Ida's words. She says, I went to bed in the early morning after praying much for guidance. I think that was the first time I ever met God face to face. And all that time, it seemed that he was calling me into his work. And early in the morning, I heard the tom-tom beating in the village, and it struck terror in my heart, for it was a death message. I sent our servant, who had come early, to the village to find the fate of these three women, and he came back saying that all of them had died during the night. And as the funeral passed our house during the morning, it made me very unhappy. I could not bear to think of these young girls as dead. Again, I shut myself in my room and thought very seriously about the condition of Indian women. This was simply not good enough for Ida Scudder. So what she did was she came back to the United States and she enrolled at Cornell Medical School. And she was part of the first batch of women to graduate from Cornell in 1899. And then she graduated and she went back to India as an RCA missionary. And she transformed women's healthcare forever in my country. And she knew the plight of Indian women will only be changed by the training of women physicians. And so she said, we got to have a hospital. We need to found, and she founded the Christian Medical College, which today is one of the finest medical institutions in all of Asia. But when she started, she wanted it to be a place where they could train women doctors. And they laughed at her. They said, you will be lucky the first year to get three people to apply. The first year, they had 151 applications. And in a recent survey done by the government of India, Ida Scudder is listed as one of India's most influential people. My country boasts a 7,000-year history. <laughs> to be counted as one of the most influential people is a pretty big deal. 
They say she ranks after Mahatma Gandhi, Mother Teresa, and then there's Ida Scudder. I stand here today, my friends, as a fruit of that labor, a fruit that was born from centuries of human faith coupled with God's faithfulness. And the seed that the Reformed Church in America has sown worldwide is bearing much fruit. And I've seen it in this last year in the bushes of the West Pokot in Kenya, in the mission hospitals in Bahrain, and in the face of people suffering from leprosy who receive God's word for the very first time in their heart language. And that's been my journey. From India, God brought me to Iowa, and from Iowa to Michigan, serving as a missionary with the RCA in the legacy of those who have gone on before us. And oftentimes I would say, you know, working in India as an RCA missionary was one of the greatest things I could do. These were my people. I got to provide them God's word in their heart language. And there's something really beautiful when people will say for the first time, you know, we worship many gods, but this God speaks my language. And I would tell that story in compelling and beautiful ways. And now in this role, it's almost like I keep thinking, and I've often said this, uh, the city I grew up in is a city called Bangalore, which if you take a globe, if Chicago's on this side where your pastor is, I'm quite literally on the other side. If you were to draw a great circle, you'll hit the city of Bangalore, a city of about 12 million people. And I knew, I know Bangalore is like my home. I know it like the back of my hand. And 10 minutes away, we grew up in the heart of the city. 10 minutes away is a street called Commercial Street. That is where all of the shopping happens. That is the hub, the energy, the vitality of Bangalore is in Commercial Street and its side lanes. And I know Commercial Street. And we would take teams there all the time. And I would take them to this lane. And this is where you get this. And this is where you get that. And I have a younger brother. So we just grew up knowing this so well. It all changed for me when my daughter Layla went with me to India for the first time. And she was about two years old. And we walked down Commercial Street. And I'd never seen India through the eyes of a two-year-old girl. And all of a sudden, what I thought I, I knew was nothing. It was, a, it was just the tip of the iceberg. Because if you're a little girl in India, the streets open up exponentially. And it explodes with colors and vibrancy that you never saw, thought possible. There are entire streets where all they do is bangles and entire streets where they do bracelets, I mean anklets. And here's an entire street with silks and scarves and fabric. And, and I was like, I thought I knew India. I guess I didn't. In many ways, I feel that way in this position, where God's kind of zoomed me out a little bit to say, if you thought that was really good, what was, what was happening in India, watch what's happening in Africa. This is what's happening in the Middle East. This is what's happening in Latin America. This is what's happening in North America. And I get to bear witness to God's amazing good work through a little denomination that somehow God said, they're my people, and we're gonna do some amazing things for hundreds of years, and you get to tell their story. And that's my call. It's like I get front row seats to the greatest show on earth. And I get to go there, I get to get fingernails dirty, roll up my sleeves, get in the trenches, do all the cliche things in terms of hard work and all that. But then the best part of it is whatever I see, I'm called to come back to our congregations in West Michigan, to Northwest Iowa, to the Pacific Northwest, to the East Coast, wherever God's people gather, wondering what is God doing. And I become that voice to say, God is moving. God is doing great things. And this is what I'm seeing. And I think God wants to do that here. That's, that's the story I want to kind of start with, right? 
And I told you I was going to give you a challenge. And the challenge also comes to you in the form of a story. I kind of hinted at this earlier, but I grew up in Bangalore. But when I was 17, I left India to come to the United States to go to college at Northwestern College in Orange City, Iowa. I had never left India at that point. It's my first uh, trip outside of the subcontinent. I was scared. Um, all I was told was by my friend, who really did not know a whole lot about America, but all he said was, dude, whatever happens, there's a place called Manhattan. Don't go there. They will shoot you for your shoes, he said. And I was like, <laughs> what? I was, you know. <laughs> and I came to the US. And I was scared. I knew nobody. And I was in Orange City, Iowa. And everything I'd seen about America, uh, they don't really paint Northwestern uh, Iowa or Northwestern, that kind of scenes in your movies or media packages around the world. So I'm entering into this world, and I'm like, this is not at all how I expected America to be. And every, I'm, I'm, like I said, every mile that separated me from my family, I felt. I was so far away, scared. I would not see my parents for two years. And I was trying to make myself a new home in this strange land. And the college was wonderful in introducing me to people who live around the campus, who would invite me into their communities. I would go to churches where I would share stories of India. I would go to small groups, Bible study groups. Families would host dinners. And, and I loved it. If you want to ever take care of somebody who's far away from home, the best thing you can do is to invite them and ask them to tell you stories of what they've left behind. It is a kind gift you can offer. And I loved, loved telling people all about this place I'd left behind. But I'll also be honest, there was always food involved. And I was a college kid, and I was like, this is awesome. And I grew up in India, and for some strange reason, I loved American food, right? Like the meat and potatoes fair, just loved it. And food is such an important part of any international trip. And those of you who have traveled around the world, you know this. It sets the tone for where you go. And so I remember the first few meals I had in North America as kind of like very, very important in, in kind of setting me up for what was to come. My first real memorable experiences happened at this home. They had a farm, and they invited me over um, to kind of show me the farm and have a meal together. And I went, and I'm a city kid, right? So I'm like fascinated. There's sleighs. I'm only saying about this in Jingle Bells. I didn't know there was actually a sleigh, and there were horses, and there was farms that were so big I never even thought of, and machines that would farm these things that were bigger than most farms in India. And I was just taking it all in, and just blown away by all of this. And then they invite me into their home, right? And, and laid out in the middle of their dining room was this table that I swear, I thought I jumped into the, the, the Good Housekeeping magazine on how to decorate a table. Uh, because they were, I mean, I was like, I've only seen this in images. They, I don't know which part is edible and which part is decorations. I, and, and there were these covered dishes that were like silently steaming in front of me. And I was like, what kind of goodness am I going to find under here? And I'm just fascinated by all of this. And I just wish I could talk to my mom who would have been so interested in this. Now, while I'm going through all of this, my personal exuberance, um, the person who invited me and his son, they have this silent exchange, right? Like they have this secret. It's about me, but they're not telling me what it is. And I'm like, it's kind of, kind of rude. I mean, you can't invite somebody only to insult them, but I'm like, but I'll give them the benefit of the doubt. Nobody's going to do that. They've got a, it's a secret. I'm, I'm involved. Maybe it's going to be an awesome surprise. So I kind of push that away, and I'm still like dreaming about what's going to be here. 
Then we all sit around and we have a little word of prayer and then it's go time, right? I mean, the lids are lifted off and what I see underneath is it is unbelievable. There is roast beef that is melting, so tender, it's melting off that spoon onto my plate. There are these mashed potatoes that were so fluffy and cloud-like and then there were these vegetables that were so colorful and vibrant so I could just ignore them completely. And then <laughs> I, I served myself these huge portions of my plate and I'm sitting there, I'm ready to get into this, right? And it was at this point that this little exchange gets more and more agitated, like a little bit more excited. And then they're like, is it time? It's time? It's time. It's time. So the dad reaches behind and grabs something and he puts it right next to my plate. As I'm like midair, ready to wolf this thing down. So I stop and I kind of put my fork down and I grab what he put next to my plate. And it's a little canister, like cylindrical. I pick it up and I twirl it, and it says these words on it, curry powder. Now, I was like, I don't, I, I don't, I don't know what to do with this. And uh, maybe they found curry powder in Orange City. That's awesome. And, and they're all looking at me, and I'm looking at them. And then the father leans, and he says, go ahead, JP, add that to your food. It'll make it taste more Indian. Now, I'm not a culinary chef by any stretch of the imagination, but even me, in my limited understanding of how these skills work, knew that no matter how much of that I was going to dump onto my mashed potatoes, it was not going to magically transform that into my mom's potato fry. And no matter how much of that I put on my roast beef, it would never make it taste Indian because Indians generally don't eat beef. Um, <laughs> but they're all looking at me, so I go ahead and dump the thing and I eat it, and it was, as you would expect, not very good. But, but the, but, the, but the evening finishes, and we all kind of go, go our separate ways. And, but that stayed with me, that experience, because honestly, that was one of the kindest gestures anybody had ever done for me. They went the extra mile to be hospitable, to invite me into their home, to bring a slice of what they thought was India into this meal. And yet it didn't work. And so after you know, Katie and I got married, we would go to India and we'd spend a lot of time watching my mom, who I believe is one of the finest practitioners of South Indian cooking, watching how she made her food and how, why did it taste as good as it did. And there was something very interesting in the way my mom made South Indian food. Because my mom never added spices to the food. Instead, what she would do is she would get this wok of sorts, right? And she would have all these spices and cooking oils. And as these things were cooking in that heat and sizzling and interacting with each other, she would add the rest of the ingredients to it. And that was the key to good South Indian cooking. Spices not being added, but rather cooked through the food. Now here's the, here's the little connection I want to make. The myth that I oftentimes have heard churches say is that missions, global missions, or missions where we get to be the hands and feet of Jesus should be a part of every church. And I believe it's a myth because oftentimes what I think we do is we, as a church, treat missions like curry powder. Well, what I mean by that is we have all of church, we want to have all the pieces set in, and then we'll sprinkle missions on top, and we'll say we're a missional church. So my challenge to you this morning would be what if we flipped the script a little bit? What if we started with missions being the very core of who we are, and adding the rest of church to it. Because I believe that the calling we have 
is one that includes us having to add, to be flavored from within, the flavor of missions from within, not being sprinkled on. Because for a world that has come to expect blandness from the church, we forget that who we are at our very core comprises the very essence of who we are. And this is actually for your church, for Fifth Reformed. Uh, this is not an admonition. This is, a, this is a continued encouragement to stay the course. When I heard I was going to be here, I went back and I looked at all the ways in which you serve your community and the world. I was looking at your mission spread. This Sunday morning is a great example of what you guys do well. So here's the myth that mission should be a part of every church. And here is what I think it should be. I don't think it should be a part of every church. I, should, I think it should be the very essence of every church. We need to breathe this stuff in. We need to breathe this stuff out. Have this be in your heart. Have your heart pump it into your arteries, into your veins. So when the evil one comes and pokes you, this is what you bleed. And as a church, when I speak this as for us as denominational leaders, as a denomination, as Christians, as we head into this world that, as I said, has come to expect a certain blandness from the church, may we resolve together that we will go in to this world and be flavored with the spice of missions that emanates from our heart. Because how then can they call on the one they've not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they've not heard? Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word about Christ. Will you pray with me? God, I thank you so much for your call upon our lives, a call that requires us to serve you at, the, at its very inception, for the opportunities you give us to let this flavor everything we do. God, I thank you for Fifth Reformed and for the many ways in which it has been your hands and feet around the world. And as we enter into this fall season with our programming, with our activities, with the busyness of life, may we not forget who we are inside. And may we who Know our call deep in our hearts, like Ida Scudder and her family. Go into this world boldly and transform it by the power of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.